Boy, that is bright. Hi, everybody. Uh, it is great to see this room just about completely full. So let me tell you about tonight, which is why uh, you're, all, you're all here. Uh, this is not going to be a debate where each side gets a minute to talk and the other side has 30 seconds to rebut. Uh, I, I, we're, we're, we don't want to do that tonight. We want this to be a forum, a conversation about a topic that many of you probably are still confused about. Uh, and, and it's a topic that's very important to every Nevada. And besides the race for governor, as I've said, uh, there is no more important thing on the ballot this year than the Energy Choice Initiative in, in terms of the long-range uh, ramifications. So we're going to have a couple of representatives, uh, one, one yay, one nay, on the Energy Choice Initiative, and we're going to, Riley Snyder and I are going to ask them uh, uh, questions. We're going to have a conversation. What will it do? What won't it do? What are, the, what, are the, what are the factors? What the pros and cons are? If either of them, and I doubt this will happen because they have both been warned, lapse into campaign rhetoric, that's what I'm here for. I still remember how to interrupt people, believe it or not. So without further ado, let's bring up tonight's uh, participants in, in this indie forum. On the S on 3 side, we're going to have John Wellinghoff. Mr. Wellinghoff is an acknowledged energy expert who's a former chairman of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, has been a consultant to various entities, including Solar City. In another life, he was the general counsel for the Public Utilities Commission. Please welcome John Wellinghoff. Thank you, John. Also joining us uh, for the No on 3 side is Chris Brooks. Mr. Brooks is a freshman assemblyman who was the acknowledged expert on energy issues during his first session. He has a quarter century experience as a consultant on various energy issues, including rooftop solar. He worked for Bombard Renewable Energy and the Valley Electric Association. Everybody, welcome Chris Brooks. Last and hardly least, Riley Snyder. No reporter in the state knows more about energy policy than Riley, and his issue pieces and explainers on the ECI have illuminated so many of the central and tangential issues at play here. He also serves to make sure the editor does not get a big head, which is a task Sisyphus would have understood. <laughs> Please welcome Riley Snyder. So before we get started with the conversation, we have a short uh, video to play uh, that uh, our fantastic uh, Northern Nevada broadcast guy, Joey Lovato, has produced. And hopefully, considering everything has already gone wrong, this will work. Uh, let's, let's, let's hopefully, let's play the video. If you've turned on a TV recently, you've probably seen a lot of ads on question three. California tried electricity deregulation and found out it's a costly mistake. I'm Jonathan Scott from Property Brothers. I'm a Nevada. Let me tell you why I support Question 3. Both sides are spending millions of dollars on ads to try and influence public opinion before November. But what is Question 3, and what would it do? First, let's take a step back. Historically, the generation, transmission, and distribution of electricity have been under the purview of just one company, a so-called monopoly model. Because the startup cost of building a power plant or installing transmission lines are so expensive, most experts concluded that electricity is a natural monopoly. But starting in the 1990s, some states opened up their electric markets. Instead of just one company controlling and providing electricity, multiple businesses could compete in the market. States made this change under the assumption that new technology and market pressure could lower prices. But no states have substantially changed their electric market structure since the late 1990s, largely because of negative perceptions caused by the rolling blackouts and skyrocketing electric prices that plagued a deregulated California. Enter question three. 
If approved by voters, the measure would amend Nevada's constitution requiring a competitive electric market to be set up by 2023. Any change to the state constitution must be approved in two elections. It passed 72 to 28% in 2016. The amendment itself is about 300 words, but outside of the 2023 implementation date, it's actually pretty vague. So what would the change mean for the average Nevadan? Instead of hooking up with Envy Energy, a switch to energy choice would likely mean signing up through a website like Texas's Power to Choose portal, allowing customers to shop for plans based on price, billing, or energy type. Supporters of the initiative include the Las Vegas Sands and data center giant Switch, which have contributed $23.6 million to the initiative. Opponents include Envy Energy, which has spent about $12 million. Supporters say it will lead to lower rates and let consumers leave their energy provider if they want. Opponents say there's no proof it will lower rates, and changing the state constitution could lead to unintended and difficult-to-reverse consequences. On average, retail market states have higher electric prices than Nevada and the national average, but retail states have seen their prices drop the most in the last decade. Experts say that electric prices are determined by more than just market structure, so it's sort of an apples-to-oranges comparison. For more on Question 3, including fact checks, check out the NevadaIndependent.com. That was, of course, the dulcet tones of Riley Snyder on, on, on that. We, we, we are, we've made a very smart decision at the Nevada Independent to not let me voice any of those videos. So I'm sure everybody is happy about that. So before we start, uh, we're going we're gonna to have a conversation here for an hour or so, maybe a little longer, uh, depending on how forthright these gentlemen are. Um, but we, we want to take some questions from you as well. We've been saying all day we um, uh, want to take questions from people who uh, are concerned about what question three will do. Uh, if you want to tweet from your phone, uh, tweet to the hashtag Indie Forums. Elizabeth is going to be keeping an eye on that. Or just, if you don't want it to be public, just email editors at thenvindy.com and we'll try to ask some of your questions uh, right, right at the end. All right, you ready, gentlemen? You, are you awake, John? All right. I'm, I'm okay, awake, John. All right. <laughs> He's so laid back, uh, so much like me. All right, so. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to start with you, John. I'm, I, what I'm going to start with is, I, I doubt that, unfortunately, most people who are going to vote on the Energy Choice Initiative are not going to actually read all of it. And Riley mentioned it's about 300 words. I want to read to people in here what the Declaration of Policy is, and then let's talk about that. Okay. The people of the state of Nevada declared it is the policy of this state that electricity markets be open and competitive so that all electricity customers are afforded meaningful choices among different providers and that economic and regulatory burdens be minimized in order to promote competition and choices in the electric energy market. This act shall be liberally construed to achieve this purpose. So Riley mentioned this in, 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 in the explainer. To a lot of people, I think most people, that's kind of vague and, 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 and so, that's why I think people are confused about what it might or might not do. There could be a lot of unintended consequences here, right? That's why we have people like Chris to make sure that <laughs> they take that language, which I, I, I don't think is that vague, actually. I think it's, it's fairly clear in the sense that it says that people have the right to meaningful choice, which is, I think, a, a fundamental right uh, that should be in the Constitution and that we should eliminate monopolies where we can, where we have those types of industries that are now evolving as this industry has evolved uh, over the last uh, five to ten years, that it really is one that's ready for competition. So I don't think it's that vague in the sense that it does give the legislature sufficient direction that they have to put in place meaningful choice. The legislature certainly has the ability, just like the <clears throat> 
governor's committee on, on energy choice has already done to look at what has been done in other states. They brought in people from Texas. They brought in people from Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, and a number of other jurisdictions and can, in fact, learn from those examples in those other states and ultimately craft from that, I think, a specific uh, set of statutes that will effectuate the people's will. Well, what, what about the argument, and I'm, by the way, everybody, I'm going to let Riley ask most of the questions because he understands this stuff. Uh, but but, but I, I guess what I'm wondering is, uh, what, what about the argument, John, that um, this is going to cause chaos, that, you know, I know we can always trust the legislature to do the right and smart thing, but the, the problem is, is, it, is that maybe you don't like the power company, maybe you get really mad at them, especially during the summer, but at least you know what you're getting. With this, it's going to be entropy. Well, again, it's not entropy in Texas, not en entropy in most of the major metropolitan areas where they have energy choice, which includes Washington, D.C., includes New York, includes Chicago, includes Dallas, includes Houston. There's not entropy there. There's not chaos there. So ultimately, I think if the legislatures in those other states are smart enough to do it, I have every faith in Chris that he's smart enough to do it as well. Well, he has faith in you. Isn't, do you feel good? Oh, absolutely. Oh, okay. <laughs> so before I let Riley jump in, let me just ask you, uh, uh, Assemblyman Brooks, uh, if, I, if I remember correctly, uh, when Riley and I talked to you on our podcast, you said you voted for this in, in 2016, didn't you? I said I did not. Oh, you said you did not. Okay. So here you are, not exactly a guy wearing an Envy Energy t-shirt up at the legislature, <laughs> uh, and you're against this. I think it's counterintuitive to a lot of people. You, you understand these issues, and yet and you seem to be a guy who's in favor of renewables, in favor of, of changing, evolving markets. Uh, why, why be against this? Well, I, I am in favor of renewables, in favor of uh, disruptive technologies and dif disruptive business models, and I think that um, technology has changed things to the point that there are a lot of things about how we currently do business that should change. I just don't think that this constitutional amendment does that, and I think that it creates uh, a lot of uncertainty, and it is, uh, the way it is written, I think it, it, it sets us back um, in our ability to, to rapidly adopt renewable energy, and I think it most importantly removes the protections that are in place for consumers um, on retail pricing, and these are consumers who can afford it the least. And so while I agree with uh, many of the goals of, of the, the constitutional amendment, it is the method that I am the most concerned about. And when we mention these other states that have done this, they've taken decades and it's, you know, they, they've seen prices go up and they've seen prices go down. But what they haven't done is they haven't put this in the constitution. And right now, our current business model that we use throughout the state, whether you're in a public power, a municipal power, or, or NV Energy, um, it doesn't exist in the Constitution. It is a creature of statute. It's a creature of, of the Nevada legislature, and it can be changed there. And so I, I think that the words of the Constitution, the words that they want, that's why I brought them with me, because that is really all this is about to me, is what we would do to the Nevada State Constitution. That is that's the main reason I oppose it. Well, it sounds like you also oppose it because you're worried about protections for consumers. But John Wellinghoff says, and I think others would say, listen, that's your job as a legislator. So they pass this, then it's your job to erect a structure to make sure consumers are protected. No? Should we not count on you to do that? Well, it, it, is, it is our job, and, and my fear is that the, the actual words of this constitutional amendment, not what the campaigns on either side say and not what 
the, uh, the maybe even the motivations of the, of the sponsors of it say, but the actual words of the constitutional amendment tie the legislature's hands in their ability to protect those consumers. Great. Well, uh, I'll, I want to start somewhere that's a little bit more high level for you two gentlemen. And there's been a lot of campaign rhetoric. And one thing I think that's gotten um, overlooked a little bit right now is like it's sort of an either or choice, right? We're either going to be stuck with a regulated monopoly model or we're going to move to this, um, this open model. And so what I wanted to ask as a question for both of you that say, um, you know, I'm the lady in the lake and I throw you a sword and you're king of Nevada for the day. How do you in a vacuum set up the electric market in Nevada? What is the most effective way um, in a vacuum that, that you would go about doing that? John, if you want to start. Sure, I'd be happy to start. Well, I believe, and I came about this belief by being on the FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, trying to not use too much jargon here if I can, being on the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission for seven years, or four and a half years, I was chairman there and became a, a, a real believer in markets. When I started there, I was actually very agnostic about whether we should go to markets or whether we should have a... Um, rate-based cost-of-service system like we do in Nevada, whether that should also be at the federal level for, for wholesale um, operations. But ultimately, I saw the power of markets at FERC. So from a standpoint of retail electric service in Nevada, I would make everything competitive that can be competitive. And I think that means that ultimately we certainly can make <clears throat> the retail provision of electricity competitive. Now, the lines and wires will remain with uh, their owner, whether it be Envy Energy if they continue to be the owner or whoever would be the owner, who would continue to maintain those wires and operate those wires and ensure that there's reliability for the system. But the retail provision of electricity overall to the end user would be competitive. Perhaps metering can be a competitive service. Certainly the energy efficiency services should be competitive as well. We should make everything that can be competitive because ultimately I think the competitive side of our economy is a very powerful engine. And I think we need to unleash that engine in Nevada. Well, first of all, I would like to welcome everyone to Assembly District 10. So you're, you're, you're in my district, so thank you for, for showing up here tonight. But um, the over-under was question number three. He would get that in, so bet the under. <laughs> um, but uh, if, if I were to find that lake and, and, and recreate um, models in, in Nevada, I would not start with the energy model. There would be a lot of things I would probably go after. But, but I think that a... Um, there are benefits of large um, uh, utility monopolies. And I, in, in my perfect vision of, of the way that the energy market worked in, in Nevada, we would be part of a regional um, wholesale market and we would have a very uh, strong public utilities commission that is able to regulate um, any, any uh, utility in the state to make sure we have consumer protections, to make sure that we have uh, uh, pricing protections and, and we have a, a legislature that, that would take the, the will of the people around things like renewables and, and what they want to see with rooftop solar distributed generation and, and, and create uh, uh, guidelines and, and mandates for that utility to, to do that, um, to do the, what the people of Nevada want. And so it's a hybrid of what we currently have and it's, it's able to be we could do this in a legislative session. We can make these adjustments in every legislative session. My fear is that the uh, constitutional amendment that's being proposed 
not only does not do that, but it, it actually prohibits the legislature from creating some of those models. Mm -hmm. I guess the question is sort of um, based around this question of like, does the system we have right now work? Does the status quo work? And I'm curious to get the, the input from you two in terms of our current regulatory structure for setting electric rates, for those who don't know, it's done in three-year cases. Envy Energy or whoever the utility is can go before the PUC and ask to change them. But it's, uh, it's a, a reactive, not a proactive way to set rates. And given the you know, immense increases in technology since a lot of this stuff was set up or the initial laws were passed in, in the 1920s, um, wouldn't it make more sense to, get, to go to a competitive market, a more open one, than the current system we have? I, I, again, I, I don't know that, that um this constitutional amendment creates that environment where that is going to happen. And so um, I would like to see, and we saw in the last legislative session, all kinds of reforms around integrated resource planning. Um, there were two bills they passed, and they've got, already gone through the Public Utilities Commission rulemaking process on integrated resource planning and things to, integ to integrate uh, um, rooftop solar, energy storage, distributed generation, all of those things, uh, electric vehicle charging, to, to integrate those into the planning process. Um, I don't know that this legislative, uh, or excuse me, that this constitutional amendment does that. Do you have an over and under on how many times I say constitutional amendment? <laughs> no, I, I can't oh. count that high. Okay, that's right. So, uh, <laughs> but, but, and, and that, that's, that's my biggest concern. Um, yeah, I would love to see all kinds of innovations. And, and you know, we started down that path last session to do some, some really innovative things. And this, this uh, I won't say the words, this will, uh, this, this amendment would, I, I believe, um, make it difficult for the legislature to do that. You know, in um, 1983, when I was a consumer advocate, I was the first consumer advocate in Nevada, I wrote the first integrated resource planning statute in the state, which was actually one of the first integrated resource planning statutes in the country. It was actually modeled by 17 other states. And at that time, the purpose of us doing that was to try to get a handle on the utility company that was continuing to make investments and make decisions without any input from either stakeholders like the Consumer Advocates Office or uh, the general public or even the Public Utilities Commission until after they'd already built the plant. They would literally build the plant and come into the commission and say, well, we built this plant and it's to serve you and so therefore you need to pay for it. And that's how it worked before integrated resource planning was put into place. We put that statute in place, and now we have these proceedings every three years that uh, ultimately required that the utility come up with a plan, a 20-year rolling plan, that every three years they come in before the commission, and everybody can look at that plan and talk about it. Problem is the utility still has all the data. Utility still controls everything that goes on with respect to that plan. And it's really playing catch-up. Now, certainly, you know, Chris is to be commended for what they did with, with respect to extending that to distribution level planning. That needs to be done so we can get a handle on those investments as well. But it still doesn't get to the fundamental point of opening up the platform, that is, the w lines and wires, to competition. Opening up the platform so you can have multiple competitive innovative players come in and provide new competitive services to customers. Without that, you can do all the planning in the world, but if you've got one person who's doing the planning, ultimately the monopoly utility, 
the plan's always going to come out the same, you know, maximizing profits for the utility, because that's their job. And I, and I have no, no problem with that. That's what a corporation is supposed to do, is maximize those profits for their shareholders. That's, that's their business, and I, I have no fault with that business. But if you can't have competition, it's better to have multiple people coming in and providing innovative solutions to consumers. Mm -hmm. And, John, you mentioned one thing that I've always been thinking about in terms of the question three debate, and that's sort of this idea of we're going to have a bunch of new participants in the electric market, say if question three passes, we'll go to the like Nevada Power to Choose website or whatever. And, you know, I, I've been on the Texas Power to Choose website. I've, I've looked through it. I think you and I went through it uh, about yep. a week or two ago. Yep. Um, and there are just, there's like hundreds of plans on there. You can sort by like the, the pricing, the percentage. 151. Of, 151. Um, how does the state of Nevada teach the, the 1.1 million people who are just used to signing up with Envy Energy um, for their electricity to shop for the best plan? How do you teach them what to look for? Is it, just what? like they, they taught them in Texas. Ultimately, you have you know, uh, a, a public information campaign about the website. You have information for consumers. I've been going over some of the um, bills of some consumers in Texas. A friend of mine who lives in Houston uh, sent me his bill. He's actually paying about 7.5 cents a kilowatt hour in Houston, and he chose, you know, one of the cheapest plans that was 100% renewable. So he's paying, uh, you know, 7.5 cents a kilowatt hour for 100% renewables, total all-in, and he was able to choose the plan. And then he uh, actually gave me the bill of his mother-in-law, who lives in Galveston, who's 84 years old, and she chose her own plan, 84 years old, she's paying five cents a kilowatt hour. So I compared her rates and her consumption, this was her September bill, to if she had been in Las Vegas. If she was in Las Vegas, well, in, in Galveston, she paid $61 in September. If she'd been in Las Vegas, she would have paid $143. So I have no doubt that if, if Texas can figure out how to teach an 84-year-old woman how to go onto a site and get the cheapest plan, I think we can do the same thing here. So we got a three-game parlay. How many times he says Texas? How many times I say uh, uh, constitutional, constitutional amendment? amendment. I already blew it on 80-10. So um, I, we are not Texas, first and foremost. Texas is about 20 times bigger than we are from an energy standpoint. Um, Texas is uh, part of their own um, market, ERCOT. They have the uh, state-run uh, and controlled um, uh, transmission system. We are more like... Argentina than we are Texas when it comes to our power markets. And so um, I, I, for all the anecdotal evidence about, you know, somebody in Galveston having a lower bill or somebody in Houston having a, a lower bill, I've seen as much anecdotal evidence and seen lawsuits as well in Texas, Massachusetts, um, and uh, uh, Illinois, I believe, and, and, and companies that are selling they, are, they have these low introductory rates and then they get slammed. Or you get, that, you get that seven cent kilowatt hour until you go over a certain amount of kilowatt hours in a day and then you get slammed. And it's happened even to my family in, in Massachusetts. And, and so they make, there are some very appealing um, some programs out there, but the overall, the overall effect to the consumers in those states, I don't believe is better than the current system we, we have in Nevada. And, and I have to ask myself, if, if, if we are, and from a, a rate standpoint, lower than the national average, and if we are, from a rate standpoint, averaged rates lower than the average of all the states that are, that are in competitive or deregulated markets, 
what are we trying to accomplish and why would we put it in our, our constitution? Okay, so stop for a second because I think it's, that's what most people in this room and most people who are going to vote on this really care about most, right? Are my rates going to go, go, go up or down? So l let me just hone in. If you think of anything, Riley, I'm sure you will that I haven't done. So John, l let's talk about that. I okay. mean, his, his statistics about rates and where they are in Nevada are right. We, we don't have skyrocketing rates compared to other states. He's right about that. You acknowledge that. So why is this necessary? Because ultimately, we, we will have the opportunity to choose lower rates if we put competition in place. And I'll tell you why. Because what's interesting is, you know, when you talk about looking at the average rates in these other states that have competition, well, that average rate takes in that five-cent rate that I talked about that woman in Galveston has that, that seven-and-a-half-cent rate in Houston. It also takes into account a 12 or 13 or higher uh, cent rate for somebody who wants a five-year contract, flat rate, who wants to have 100% renewables, who wants to have some other special aspect of their bill. So you can't take the average rate in Texas. You can't take the average rate in any one of these other states that have competition and compare it against anything. What you can take is the, the cheapest rate. And if you take the lowest rate, I assure you that those lowest rates will be lower than the rates that we pay today in Nevada. That makes sense. He answered his, my question, the, 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 the question that how I wanted to reply. You're taking, you're cherry picking the absolute best case scenarios out of a broad spectrum of, of rates that are available to, to demonstrate what, what, you know, is potentially possible. That, that, bring, that is dependent upon long-term contracts, credit ratings, uh, purchasing certain amounts and certain amounts at certain times. I work for the people of the state of Nevada, specifically Assembly District 10, and many of them, and I think of my own, some of my own family members, my grandmother, I can, on, on the power to, 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 to choose website, finding a, a rate structure that is just, first of all, I, I, she would call me to come over and turn the computer on. And then, and then she'd call me to, to get her on the internet. Why, why are you, why are you so anti-old people? I mean, what is wrong? What is wrong? I mean, you know, you. I call my kids to help me do some of that stuff as well. Can you? But I mean, I, I guess what I'm saying here is that, is that, and I'll let Riley jump back in here a second. But listen, energy, energy is hopelessly complex. You know, when, when Riley turns in a story and I read it, I just pray the next day that one of these sides isn't going to call up yelling because I didn't understand something he wrote. But, but intuitively. You know, people, even 84-year-olds, uh, if they have a choice, they are, going to, they are going to be able to find something cheaper. They'll be able to look and see what, all the menu of options out there as opposed to having it foisted on them by a, 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 a monopoly. Why won't that work with energy? I just do not believe, based upon all that I've seen, I do not believe that um, what this amendment does to our energy structure leads to an environment where residential ratepayers are going to see any savings. And so I'm not saying that it, it's, it doesn't work in Texas. I'm not saying that it doesn't work in other states. I'm saying that where we currently are and where even under the, the rosiest of scenarios we could end up, it is not by any means worth the, the, the decade that it could take to try to, to dismantle and then rebuild and the cost that the ratepayers today will have to, to, to suffer with. And, and, and that's based on, not based on, on, on campaign rhetoric from the yes side or the no side. It's 25, I was in the Governor's Committee on Energy Choice, I chaired the, 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 the Assembly Committee on Energy, and I, I, I'm the Vice Chair of the, the uh, Interim Committee on Energy for the Legislature. I have sat through 
literally hundreds of hours and, and read thousands of pages on this. And this is mostly from proponents, by the way, of, of this, this measure. And there is nothing in there in, in its entirety that leads me to believe that residential ratepayers, especially those who can afford a rate increase the least, will see any savings from this in, in even the next decade. I, I want to bring up this rate issue, right? Because I think it's dependent on, on more factors than just the structure of the market. There's the price of natural gas. There's the cost of decommissioning plants, which even though in Nevada we don't have any like old nukes or whatever, we have the Valmy plant, which will have to happen. So those costs are going to be there anywhere, right? Like that the ratepayers have to pay off. Like it, it's not necessarily just a market question in well, terms of the rates you have to pay. That's correct. There's a million different uh, variables moving forward that are going to affect the cost of our electricity. And, and most of them... Um, under our current model are kind of uh, trending in the, the right direction. And so, uh, you know, if we have to take, you know, we have to take a, who wants to buy a 35-year-old coal plant? Anybody? Great investment, right? So if we have to take a 35-year-old coal plant and, and put it on the chopping block tomorrow, and, and then uh, whatever the losses are associated with that 35-year-old coal plant, the people of Nevada have to spread that across our rates. Um, the Public Utilities Commission of Nevada, um, which is an independent body um, appointed uh, with three chairs appointed by, or commissioners appointed by the governor, um, put out a report that, that, that shows that there would be a minimum of $4 billion of stranded assets that, that Nevada ratepayers would have to pay. Now, that is the, the methodology and, and the math that, that public utilities commissioners use to assess stranded assets across the entire country. That is the methodology that we, we use. And, and they came up with a, a minimum $4 billion that ratepayers are on the hook for. That is not something I'm prepared to, to saddle the, 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 you know, the constituents of AD10 with. So I want to ask but, John about this well, because... If the, I could just yeah, go respond to that because it's needs um, response. So I've been a regulatory attorney for 40 plus years. What Chris says is correct about the $4 billion, but what Chris doesn't say, or maybe I, don't, I assume you understand, Chris, is that that $4 billion is in our rates today. So ultimately, you're not paying any more. We'll have to pay it one way or the what other. What does that mean? To explain to people what that means well, it's already the coal in the plant, rates. The coal plant that Chris talked about, NV Energy's got a depreciation schedule, and we've got to pay off that depreciation schedule. What it is, it's in rate base. We're going to have to pay that rate, rate base amount whatever it may be. So it doesn't matter whether energy choice goes in, into place or not. The $4 billion is on the books. It's on the books now, and Nevadans are stuck with it. Just like these exit fees that people talk about. Well, people are exiting the system. Well, if people don't pay the exit fees, they're not going to save anything because they'll still have to pay the cost going forward. But the way that's taken care of, and it's taken care of in Texas, I'll say Texas again, and, and, it's, and it's taken care of, shot. And, and it's taken care of in, in every other state that has faced this issue with stranded costs, is you securitize them. In other words, you put them in a securitized payment stream that is identical to the stream that you would have paid anyway if you would have had in your, in, embedded in your rates, because they are embedded in your rates. So it, there's no, I want to make this very clear. If Chris is saying there's an additional $4 billion that we'd have to pay when energy choice goes into place, he's wrong. And I can tell you as a regulatory attorney for 40 years that he's wrong. Me and the Public Utilities Commission of Nevada are wrong. No, they, they said $4 billion, but they, they, they didn't 
dispute the fact that, in fact, it's embedded in current rates, and they know that as well, and the regulatory staff knows that as well. There is $4 billion, but it's in current rates, and it doesn't go away. You've got to pay for it one way or the other. It's all there. John, I want to ask just really quickly, it's related to this topic, but a couple of months ago, you, you were there when uh, Mark Garrett, another energy analyst, uh, yep. came to the uh, Committee on Energy Choice, which was this really fascinating body of 25 people who tried to figure out how to implement uh, energy choice um, if it passed. And Mark Garrett presented this report that said, if we sell off every generating asset and long-term power purchase agreement that Envy Energy, Envy Energy has, best case scenario, we get $1.1 billion. Correct. And can you help people in the audience understand how we can go from we're in the whole $4 billion to we just made a billion dollar profit? Well, what, what for, first, there's that? no hole because we're already in the hole. In other words, we're already in the hole for $4 billion that we have to pay off for all the plant investments that Envy Energy made because that's a bargain that we made and the PUC approved those and put those in rates as prudent investments. So we will pay for those one way or the other. So there's no $4 billion hole, number one. Number two, the billion dollars comes primarily from the accumulated deferred income taxes that Envy Energy has ultimately taken from ratepayers but not yet paid, okay? When, in fact, those plants are divested, those accumulated deferred income taxes will not have to be paid, but, but the money that's been collected will go back to ratepayers. So ultimately, there's a payment back to ratepayers that makes up most of that $1.1 billion that Mark Garrett came up with. That's where he got... The, the, the major amount of that, of that money. That, like, that requires like, a favorable ruling from the IRS that that's yes, going to Yes, and yet, absolutely so. it does, but there, there would be because what else are they going to do? Say, oh, you're not paying the money, you, just need to, you should just keep it? No. You took it from ratepayers, you didn't pay it in taxes, it should then go back to ratepayers. Well, I mean, rate making, that's how rate making works. You, you, you look backwards on, on you, you look forward on, on resource planning and you look backward on costs and rates. And so if there were um, as a result of a, a change in, in tax code and tax policy and um, a, a rebate owed to the, the rate payers of the state of Nevada, that in a rate case, looking back at costs and, and um, rates, would assess what that was, and that's how we lower rates. So when we lower rates, we're looking forward uh, for a, basically a worst-case scenario, and we look back on what actual cost was. And so that's how rates go up, and that's how rates go down. And if there is value associated with um, uh, a, a tax windfall, then that goes into a rate reduction. That's just the way it works. And so I, I, that, that, that report um, was, was creative and, and innovative and, and looked at things in a different way than, than every other report in the Public Utilities Commission process looked at things. Um, uh, and and uh, but I don't agree with it, and and nor do any of uh, the, the folks, um, evidently at the uh, Public Utilities Commission. Before Riley moves on, uh, is John wrong that the four billion dollars, which obviously is a very powerful argument, not that you or anybody from NV Energy would ever try to scare people, but <laughs> but is that is that just a scare tactic? Listen, you do this, suddenly you're going to have a four billion dollar bill. Are you people not? You should stick with the devil. You know, is he right that it's already there? And the second part of that, Chris, would 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 be. That's going to be an argument that we should never have an open marketplace then because you're going to always have these yeah. stranded yeah. costs that the monopoly has, and, and you, you don't want to have to pay those, so we should always keep them because then we're insulated from having to pay it. 
Well, well we, we can look at that in that integrated resource planning process. If there is, if the Nevada legislature creates an environment where the utility has a different methodology of procuring energy based upon anything, our, our renewable portfolio standard, or we want to slowly start uh, moving away from um, the monopoly-owned generation model, we can do that through an integrated resource planning process where we just do not allow these purchases or these investments and we make them go uh, to a different process. Or we, we do what we currently can do under the NGR program where you can have direct procurement with, with one consumer and a direct generation with another uh, a generator and the utility is in the middle of that transaction and it's off of and outside of the, the, the asset model. And so there's ways to do that right now, and, and we currently do that, and, and we can expand those models to provide more wholesale energy choices, more retail energy choices for, for a whole vast variety of, of consumers. Again, I go back to what I, I constantly go back to, is um, that's not necessarily what this amendment does. And this amendment kind of, you know, it, instead of, you know, repainting the, the, the bedroom colored walls, we burn the house down and try to rebuild it from scratch. And so I, I think that, that you know, it, that is the fundamental issue I have with, with what question three does, not with what, what we're trying to do around having choice for consumers or, or having choice for, for wholesale generators. I, I, I agree with those, those, those uh, goals. What is it an amendment to again? <laughs> uh, the Nevada Constitution. Take a shot. Now I see why you didn't have a cocktail service. Uh, yeah, we'd, we'd exactly. be drunk. Be exactly. Gone. exactly. Texas and the Constitution, it'd all be gone. Uh -huh. So, Assemblyman, um, as I'm sure you and probably most of the NV Energy employees in here have realized, there's been a lot of big customers that have filed to leave mm -hmm. the utility in the last three-year period, most recently. The Raiders, Station Casinos, um, there's even new companies that are trying to move to Nevada that are saying before they move, we don't want to operate with the utility at all, we want to buy power on the open market. Doesn't this present a problem down the line if this, it's called the 704B process because that's what it is in state law. If that continues and more and more larger customers leave, like aren't we sort of just delaying the problem by not moving to an open market sooner? Um, I, I think it creates a problem if we don't change the way that we look at rates and how we recover costs through rates. And, and so um, there is nothing that stops the, the Nevada legislature from um, changing the rate structure of every utility or especially an investor-owned utility and how they recover rates. Because yes, we do create this disincentive to do innovative things when we say, um, you know, the you only way that you can recover this is through the volumetric charges that you, you, of, of the product that you sell. That, that creates some problems and that creates some issues. Think of rooftop solar, think of energy efficiency measures, think of renewable energy contracts. Um, and so I think there needs to be reforms. Needs to be reforms on, on, on a utility ownership model um, of, of assets. Uh, there need to be reforms on um, how we treat the recovery of costs through rates. And, or we will, we will create, I think, problems as the large consumers leave. Because here's the dirty little secret about rate making. Um, the largest consumers amongst us subsidize the smallest consumers amongst us. And that is in our current environment. And so, uh, yeah, I can see why the big consumers want to get out of that, that, that paradigm. Um, and and it's, it's really why I'm the most concerned about the smallest consumers that are in that particular business model. John, do you want to weigh in? Or? Well, I'm just trying to think of so, the, the last thing that Chris said about the large consumers subsidizing the small ones, which is true. 
but it also shows you how valuable it is for them to have competition, those large consumers. If they're actually paying more than they even should, then ultimately it's extremely valuable for them to have competition. And that competition is going to continue all the way down the line. We've got the Clark County School District's got a proposal on their desk right now to save them $60 million. So ultimately the Clark County School District will likely go out. See Washoe County School District go out. Because governments under uh, 704B can aggregate all of their uh, individual facilities, even though they're not contiguous in the same property. So school districts could go out, the university could go out, you know, you're going to see virtually every customer. And so ultimately what you can have left is the small commercial residential customers. And I don't know how you set up rate making to then a rate structure to help them if everybody's gone, if the other people are all gone. Uh, I, I'm not sure how you set up a rate structure to help those those customers because, you know, somebody's got to pay for what's left ultimately. And I guess that, that sort of leads to uh, a trend I've noticed in this and that there's a lot of people in the rurals who are very concerned about this. And while I don't want to get into that whole issue of like what's going to happen to cooperatives, I, I think I've written about that and we've talked about that before. Doesn't that you know, isn't that a point in favor of the regulated monopoly structure where it has to serve everyone? It has to serve, you know, grandma who lives in the middle of nowhere, Eureka, Nevada, um, as opposed to, you know, hoping a competitive supplier will, will serve them. Well, fortunately, with our electronic, you know, uh, digital world we have, you can serve somebody in Eureka or in Ely or Elko and still serve somebody in Las Vegas, and the incremental cost to these retail providers is not much more. What it costs to serve them is the lines and wires, and those lines and wires are already in place. So you have, you know, miles and miles and miles of lines and wires to serve those remote uh, you know, uh, farms and, and ranches, etc. But ultimately, because the wire is there, you know, uh, a retail provider who is based in Las Vegas, who's serving 10,000 customers here, could just as easy serve, you know, 10 customers up there as well, in addition to the 10,000 they have here. Incrementally, it's not going to be any, any additional cost for them because the maintenance of the line, lines of wires is still going to be within NV Energy's purview. It's just going to be a matter of sending them a bill and electronically, you know, doing that. So uh, that's the other thing about, about the rurals. I don't see anybody in the rural areas who's going to be denied service because we go to Energy Choice. You look at Texas. Look at Texas. I mean, there's lots of rural areas in Texas, and nobody is denied service there, ultimately. On the subject of rurals, most of them are served not by Envy Energy, but by rural electric co-ops, and there's been a lot of concern um, what's going to happen to them if every man, woman, and child in Nevada has the constitutional right to purchase electricity from a, a provider. Um, and I know I've, I've asked you about this before, but if you were... In, what would you say to like the people of White Pine <coughs> County or Elko who have um, you know been very concerned about this issue and, and voted against it? I'd say that those co-ops that currently have preference power, that is preference federal power at very low rates, will continue to have those contracts. And we've had discussions already with the Colorado River Commission who oversees those contracts and have every assurance the contracts will stay in the state of Nevada for the benefit of those people who have preference. So ultimately, those contracts will remain with those co-ops and those immunities. They'll be at a very low rate, so ultimately they'll be very competitive, number one. Number two, I certainly think there's no 
problem with ultimately allowing a nonprofit entity like a co-op or a muni to continue to provide retail service. So they could provide retail service at a very low rate to their customers and continue to do so. So I don't think there should be any reason why they should expect their customers are all of a sudden going to flee to you know, retail, other retail providers that are providing service to people in Las Vegas or in Reno. However, they still should have the choice because if, if they have the opportunity to see that there are other providers that can provide them some services that their particular co-op or muni can't provide them, they should have that opportunity. Even if they're like a, large, like a mine or something? I know Barrick and Newmont are, are right. separate and don't they're get out. Yes. but. You know, isn't that going to kind of destroy the business model for cooperatives? Or that, that's the reason well, I've heard. Well, I, th from. I think all the mines and anybody that's large enough to, to, to have been, um, you know, uh, in that area and been a member of a co-op is now out on their own on 704B. So, you know, the co-ops are, are largely, you know, the, the small rural communities and the farms and, and ranches out there. And, and, and I don't see, again, how that's going to destroy their model ultimately as long as they can, number one, maintain that preference power at low rates and still provide service to their customers. So um, back to that, kind of the, the first part of your question about rural ratepayers, um, whether they be in a co-op or be in a public power agency or NV Energy, which has, has thousands of, of rural customers, um, it, there are customers, especially rural customers and low-income customers, that cost more to serve than they they will ever pay back in, in their utility rates. And um, there, if, if we took, if we peeled back all of this kind of aggregation of cost that, you know, we make a deal with utilities for the, you know, um, the, the granting of, of this service territory, they have an obligation to serve everyone in it and serve everyone in it with the same rate class across the rate class. And so, or for the same price across the rate class. And so right now, if we peel all that back and you're paying on a per unit charge to get out to the, the, the rancher um, out in, on the end of the line, um, that per unit charge that then will be passed on to the retail provider of electricity, in addition to the, the, the energy charge, um, will, there is, I can see no way, unless out of the goodness of the heart of these, these energy providers that are just willing to tack them on with their ones in downtown Las Vegas, I cannot see a way where that price doesn't go up. It, it, and it makes no business sense for a, 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 a retail energy provider to come here and say, I'm going to go ahead and give away energy to these rural consumers because I'm going to make so much from these industrial and, and urban consumers. That just does not compute in, in the business world. And, and not only that, going back to the words, one sentence, um, it, it, it prohibits the, the Nevada legislature from getting in the middle of that business deal and saying, you retail energy provider must take on these people over here and at this cost. We lose the ability to do that. And that's currently how it works. Currently, it is the costs are spread across all residential ratepayers. I live, you know, if I lived right next door to a power plant, I, say the ex I pay the exact amount of money as somebody who lives 200 miles from a power plant. And, and without the, the current system that we have, that no longer is the case. John, do you want to address Actually, that? in retail, re retail states, that's not the case. Oh. Um, it struck a chord of some kind. <laughs> must be somebody from Fallon or someplace <laughs> out, in, out in the rurals there, ultimately. <laughs> But um, it's actually not the case. Number one, there's, there's, there's 
an unbundling between the lines and wires, and that is the high cost, and I'll admit to Chris that is the high cost, but those costs of the lines and wires will continue to be in the unbundled part of the rate, which will be part of the bill that NV Energy will still be charging someone. So whatever that rate is, they'll charge those people, and ultimately that will be the cost that they will pay. The other aspect of it, though, the energy part of that bill will come from a competitive provider. And in fact, in other states where they do have retail choice, they do make somebody become the provider of last resort. So there is the ability of the legislature and or the, the regulator overseeing the market to ensure that everybody is served, that everybody is served throughout the state, whoever they may be. And, and they usually rotate that in, in places or they designate some entity to be the, the, the provider of last resort, but ultimately everybody is served and everybody is provided service. I guess to Assemblyman Brooks, um, you know, there's been a lot of questions over like, you know, are these new electric companies going to like charge fees? One I've heard of is like disconnecting fee, where if you try to change providers, you get charged a fee. If there might be like, you know, variable rates at night versus day. But don't you as a legislator, you'll have 120 days to kind of put together consumer protection plans to sort of address all of these things that might come up, right? Isn't the ball in your court if this passes? Or what, what's the limitation on that and what's your view of the constitutional amendment um, for what you guys would be prohibited from doing? So what, what, what the amendment does is it creates a new right. Um, it, it's in Article One of the Nevada Constitution. There's currently, think of that as kind of the Nevada's Bill of Rights. There's currently 22, um, 22 different um, items in, in sections under Article One. This creates a 23rd. And in that 23rd section of Article I of our Constitution, it creates uh, a series of rights. And one of those rights, bringing my book out now, because uh, it, it, it says uh, this very important, it says all kinds of stuff about what we like to happen and what we'd love to see happen, but this is what it does. It creates a right. Nothing herein shall be construed as limiting such persons or entities' rights to sell, trade, or otherwise dispose of electricity. Now, there, that conflicts with many other pieces of this, this, this amendment, but it takes precedent over the other pieces of the amendment. The other pieces of the amendment talk about wanting to or trying to uh, respect the, the policies of the state of Nevada. That actually creates a right. And so that is m m my biggest issue in that if we step in and we say that, you know, you cannot go to knock on people's doors, for instance. Who wants people knocking on their door to sell them electricity from now on. Um, and we say, well, you can't do that. Well, all we have to do is have one of those companies challenge that, and, 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 and we see that they will. Every company that wants to do business in the state of Nevada is doing business in, in places like Arizona, or excuse me, Massachusetts and Texas, and almost, well, many of them are now currently in, in, involved in, in class action lawsuits with consumers, or you have like the Attorney General of uh, uh, Massachusetts and the Attorney Generals of, of, of New York who are really taking a look at regulating these retail uh, providers in a much bigger way if they even allow them to exist moving forward because of the consumer confusion, but, but uh, I would say misinformation that some of these providers uh, put out there. So when the legislature or the Public Utilities uh, Commission of Nevada tries to step between that business deal, you've just violated a Nevadan's right to both sell and both uh, uh, acquire energy however they want to do it. That's just determining like constitutional muster, right? Like the First Amendment's been around forever, but I can't like stand up and point over there and say there's a fire. 
that's been like, you know, argued out in the Supreme Court. So the creation of a right doesn't necessarily, you know, say you guys can do X, Y, and Z, but you can't do X, Y, and Z. It's sort of, it has to pass that muster through the court system. So not necessarily could, you know, the legislature pass a law saying you can't do door-to-door sales, correct? Well, so you bring up a, a wonderful point. Um, it, it, it has to pass muster constitutionality in the courts. So we would, as a legislature, for instance, let's say this passes, take it up and say, we want to have these consumer protections, we want to have this renewable energy portfolio standard, we want to have this rooftop solar system, net metering system, um, and then all it takes is a a, a challenge of its constitutionality in the courts, and then what does that do for us implementing that, and then do we we have to wait to the next legislative session to make those repairs, and then, uh, then is there another challenge? And, and that's, the, that's, that's why my fundamental problem with where this lives and how it's written is it creates that environment where we will be in gridlock with the courts um, is, is if we were to pass and grant these rights. Not only that, is this the appropriate place even in the Constitution? I mean, inalienable rights of things such as the, um, uh, the liberty of speech and press, that should be very important to you too. Uh, the right to assemble and to petition, like we are here today. The right to keep and bear arms. These are all things that are in Article One of the Constitution. And now, this this beautiful piece of, of constitutional um, um, prose will be Item Twenty Three: Open Competitive Retail Energy Market, Granting of Monopolies and Exclusive Franchises for Generation of Electricity are, are, Prohibited. Are, are you kidding me? You are actually going to try to suck up to the press and. <laughs> And, and, and the gun rights crowd in the same presentation? You, you act as if you don't know me. <laughs> My goodness. So, so uh, I just want to say, I want to I talk to, to these gentlemen for another 15, 20 minutes, Max. Then I, wanna, I do want to take any questions from out there. It, pl- please uh, e- email editors at the nvindy.com or tweet to Indie Forums, and we'll try to get to some questions in 15, 20 minutes. I, I know you still have some other questions, rather, but I, but I have one issue that I want to bring up that a lot of people have heard about and that, that is a, a big argument that you've had uh, on the yes side. And this is this issue of Envy Energy over-earning. That right. they're over-earning. You, yes. you brought this up. I've heard this uh, from, from other people. I don't think a lot of people know what that means. They think, okay, Envy Energy is a monopoly, but they're not allowed to make some kind of huge profit. They're, they're restricted what they can do. What do you mean they over-earn? Well, ultimately, the Public Utilities Commission sets a level, a return, on their total investment that they're authorized to make each year. And that amount set by the PUC is supposed to be a substitute for competition. That's why we have a Public Utilities Commission, is basically to set up a structure that will rein in what would be excess profits. But to the extent that the utility actually earns in any year or multiple years in excess of the amount that they're authorized by the PUC, they're over-earning. So is the PUC not doing its job? Is that what you're saying? The PUC has a very difficult job. Again, regulatory attorney for many years, consumer advocate. I don't count- want to hear your resume again, sir. Ca- counsel, <laughs> the counsel of the PUC that you, that you already said. And, and ult- ultimately, um, they are always, that is, the PUC and the consumer advocate and everybody who is challenging the rates of the utility is always on the short end of the stick because the utility has all the data. They have all the, well, you know, the PUCs under state salaries, the 
Consumer Advocates Under State Salaries, Envy Energy, uses our money to fight against us. They, every single dollar that they spend in every single rate case, we get to pay for as ratepayers. So it's extremely difficult in those cases to ultimately ensure that the utility is not going to be over-earning from year to year to year. And as a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, from full years of data from 2017 back to 2012, this utility has over-earned in excess of $340 million, above the level that the Public Utilities Commission has authorized in their rates. I've actually seen these, this data before, as, as I'm sure you have too. Do, do you think it's right? Um, is it correct? Or yes, is correct. It, uh, yeah, so um, I think that, that the issue of over-earning is, is being kind of oversimplified in the campaign rhetoric. Um, when you take a look at uh, the way that the utility model works, and I think, you, I think John explained it pretty well, about you set targets on approved expenditures and ex approved costs, and if you exceed those costs, guess what? You as a corporation and the shareholders of that corporation eat that under earning. And then if you, if you overperform from what the agreed upon cost of, of doing business in, in, in a given period of time is, then that is a over-earning. Um, I don't think it's, 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 a, it's a bad thing by any means. And I, I know it's, it, it, if you're a, a How can it not payer, be a bad thing? I guess people are wondering, like, <laughs> yeah, if, okay. it's set, if it's supposed to be set by the PUC, and, and even though uh, John Wallinghoff didn't say it, what he's essentially saying is Envy Energy has all the data, they have, they have their uh, high-priced lawyers, and, and, and they can get away with all this stuff. Why, why shouldn't that be something we're concerned about? If you look at the last several years, and I'm, I'm, I, I mean the last five years to be very, very uh, specific, um, their cost of doing business for a variety of reasons has gone down. Their cost as to, to, uh, on a per-unit basis has gone down. Their cost of administration has gone down, and the cost of fuel that they use to, to, to sell the energy that we buy has gone down. And they, they through many measures, exceeded the, the reductions that were predicted in the integrated resource plan. And so um, that is, is just the way our, our, our business model is currently set up. Now, if we want to change that business model, or if we think that the Public Utilities Commission isn't getting all the information, doesn't have the ability to regulate them correctly, which I think is what you're, you're implying in that, then let's do that by all means. I, I think that's something that, that is well within the, the, the responsibility and, and, and the, the purview of the Nevada legislature. Again, if, if, if this goes through and, and we still are talking about having a regulated uh, transmission and distribution utility that would still go before the, the Public Utilities Commission and still go through rate cases, how does this solve even that issue? And, and so while I don't see it as, as a problem, I, I see it as, as, as the way, the complicated way that utility businesses are run and regulated, I, I just don't see how this necessarily solves that problem. So I guess a, a question, a natural follow-up for John at, at this point, that, that John, the one who knows about energy, not you, John, um, <laughs> would be, exactly. so right, the argument is that Envy Energy is earning $340 million more than it should, right? What about the structure of a restructured market would make sure that like that money stays with consumers versus 340 or 314 million dollars just going to a bunch of you know new energy companies what, what would change that? what would change that would be the 
other guy that I can go pick as opposed to the guy who's charging me the rate. In other words, if I've got multiple providers to choose from, I ultimately can choose the lowest rate. If somebody wants to make a high profit, somebody can perhaps go and take energy from that person, but I don't have to. I can go choose who I want to take energy from. So ultimately in doing that, I can choose a rate that is appropriate, a structure, a contract that's appropriate, and everything else that ultimately will ensure that I'm getting what I believe is a fair rate, because I've got multiple, you know, a dozen or more providers to choose from. When I was in Washington, D.C., I had the opportunity to choose my electric provider. Interestingly enough, I got my electricity from the gas company, because the gas company was cheaper to provide me electricity than the electric company in D.C. So ultimately, I had the opportunity to, you know, self-control ultimately. And, and, talk, and Chris was talking about, you know, these over-earnings and, and part of it's r related to fuel costs going down. Actually, it has nothing to do with fuel costs. Fuel costs in our law, deferred energy statute, which I actually helped write in 1975, passes right through uh, rates. So, so fuel costs going down would have nothing to do with over-earnings at all, would have nothing, absolutely nothing at all. So ultimately, over-earnings is, is a fact of the company making more than the PUC has authorized them to do. And if we have multiple providers, we don't have to worry about that because ultimately we can go choose, you know, the other guy if we want to. Doesn't that get into like sort of the big philosophical question here that like if you have a regulated monopoly, you have somewhat stable rates because it's done in the three-year period. If it's in this uh, open competitive market, the free market system, sure, like if we had had a competitive market, we probably could have had lower rates over the last three years or you could have found them. But if rates go up, if gas prices go up, if any of the other like many factors that affect the price of electricity go up, people are going to feel that like more instantly than they would um, under the current model where, you know, like what Assemblyman Brooks was saying, uh, they have to eat the cost if they under earn. So I guess what is the advantage of being able to ride that free market roller coaster? Um, they don't have to ride the free market roller coaster. They can choose. Again, you can choose whatever plan you ultimately want and whatever is offered ultimately. So you can choose a strip contract for three to five years if you want to have a flat rate. You can absolutely do that. And in fact, rates you know, in Nevada, because just because they, you have a rate case every three years, the deferred energy cases are more often than that. So rates can go up and down in Nevada more often than every three years, ultimately. But if you want to, under a choice state, you ultimately can decide if you want to not be subject to that. Or on the, on the other side of it, there are people who choose in a number of these states to be subject to these variance in, in, in rates and, and, and subject to the wholesale prices if they want to. But again, it's a choice that's up to the consumer. The con consumer can ultimately decide you know, what, what they want to do. Mm -hmm. I want to ask about renewables before we run out of time or have to take audience questions. And one thing that struck me when I read uh, the Gwynn Center, a friend of the site, nonprofit, um, they did a very lengthy and good report on question three as well. And what they said was that there was no correlation between how much renewable adoption a state has an energy market structure. Do you guys agree or disagree with that assessment? I, well, I... I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I think there is uh, certainly some uh, correlation if you look at states that have gone to uh, energy choice, and I'll, and I'll talk about two. I'll talk about Texas, and I'll talk about <laughs> Pennsylvania. I'll, I'll talk about a different state as well. Um, 2017, NV Energy put in place approximately 240, 250 megawatts of renewable energy. 2017, 
Texas put in 3,500 megawatts of renewable energy, over 10 times the amount that ultimately was put in place by NV Energy. So that's one data point. It's 10 times the size of Nevada. Well, more than that. Uh, right? Not, not, I mean, not I, I guess, no, 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 I just, I want to get, because yeah, yeah. Riley asked a really good question, yeah, so yeah. that doesn't seem like a fair comparison to me. Okay, and again, even, even accounting for size, yeah. if you look at, that's how much they put in, in, in that one year, if you look at how much renewable energy Texas has now, they have over 23,000 megawatts of renewable energy in place. So even on a proportionate basis, they are su substantially ahead of Nevada, and they are a choice state, even on a proportionate basis. That's one, one, one data point. Second one is, is uh, uh, a friend of mine, Nora Brownell, came out here to talk about energy choice in Pennsylvania and what was done there. And the interesting thing she said is when they started energy choice in Pennsylvania, they didn't have any wind farms. But ultimately, when they started Choice, people wanted renewables and ultimately demanded renewables come into the state. And so as a result, people started putting in wind farms to meet the demand. So if you look at data from consumers, as far as consumers' uh, preferences, take polls in Nevada, any place around the country, you'll find that 70 to 80 percent of consumers want more renewables. If we give consumers choice, they're going to demand that there be more renewables. Uh, no. So uh, <laughs> the, 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 the states that have strong renewable portfolio standards and, um, and legislative mandates over the last uh, several years have seen the largest adoption of renewables and currently have the highest percentage of renewables. And uh, Nevada is a great example. Um, we have the highest um, solar per capita in the United States in Nevada. And so that is something that happened, was achieved up until this point by a strong renewable portfolio standard where we say you must and then they go out and invest and then they do. And that is how we've achieved that. And, and that's, if you look at the data, and, and that's, you know, w without having a PowerPoint up there where we're showing slides, competing slides of EIA data and, and state charts. Oh, no, let's do that. <laughs> it's, it's very difficult, but, but, but the, the data that, that, that I um, have seen demonstrates that, that states with strong standards or incentives and, and our uh, regulated states have the highest adoption of, of renewables. And besides some anecdotal stories from Texas and, and other places that really had a long way to go, and so they, they've made some very some robust progress in the last very few years based on pricing, Nevada has a long history of renewable adoption and a long history of um, uh, having a strong portfolio standard that have really gotten us and, and other states to where they are today. And, and the Gwen Center uh, report really brought that to light um, and, and has the data that correlates with that. Um, before we take questions, uh, uh, and, and I think Elizabeth's gonna come up and, uh, and, and read some of those questions, so um, uh, assuming she hasn't quit, uh, uh, <laughs> and she's still here, she's gonna come up. But I, I do wanna address, finally, before Elizabeth brings up some of the audience questions, the elephant in the room, so to speak, uh, that, that Chris Brooks brought up early on, and that I think that there's questions that need to be asked to both of you. Most people won't think about this, but let me, let me start with you, uh, John Wellinghoff. You, 
already, you've been through a lot of public policy fights. You understand public policy. You were the first consumer advocate in 1864, I think you said, or something like that. 1846. <laughs> 46, not 64. Here is what, what makes absolutely no sense to any student of public policy, I think, and I know you are that, and I want you to really explain this. Why this should be put into the Nevada Constitution. It makes no sense, even to some people out here, they're thinking, why would you put something like energy policy in the Nevada Constitution? It does not make any sense from a public policy standpoint. Uh, there are things that have been put into the Nevada Constitution by ballot initiative that, in my opinion, never should have been uh, put in there. Uh, <coughs> also, Jim Gibbons, where the hell are Anyhow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> But seriously, why should this sure. go in the Constitution? Two reasons, okay. okay? Number one, it is a fundamental property right we're talking about. We're talking about the right to self-generate. This, in the Constitution, would enshrine that as a fundamental right to self-generate. Now, Chris and I worked together in the last legislative session, and we actually got the right to self-generate in a piece of legislation. That could be changed the next time that Chris gets into the legislature and go back the other way. I don't want to change the other way. It's a fundamental right. Ultimately, without that right, Envy Energy could stop you from generating on your roof, as they did at one time with rooftop solar. They could stop you from doing whatever you wanted to do with respect to generation in your own facility because they have a monopoly. And legally, as a monopoly, they can do whatever they want to do with respect to generation. I don't think that's correct. I think that consumers should have that fundamental right, number one. Number two, <clears throat> we put it in the Constitution and we got uh, a, uh, on the ballot in 2016. We got 72% of the people voting in favor of it. So if, as Chris has, has indicated, if this could be done by the legislature, I didn't see the legislature do a thing in 2017 on this particular issue. They did zero on this particular issue. I think the people need to direct the legislature because the legislature, you would have thought it would go, it would have got some direction from 72% of the people who voted in 2016, but yet nothing was done in 2017 to advance this particular issue with respect to competition and having a meaningful choice for consumers. So let me, let me read between the lines of what he's saying, and I'll actually tell you what he's actually saying. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think that there is some justification for this argument, and you've only been there for one session. But I think the real motivation here is this. They don't trust the legislature to do the right thing, that Envy Energy has held tremendous sway over legislators and been able to scuttle good public policy. Sorry, guys. And, 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 and the, the argument would be that their only recourse is to go to the people first and then put it in the Constitution to not let bad legislators, present company accepted, of course, uh, trifle with accepted. this. Yeah. Uh, but, but seriously, I mean, it's, that's, that's the point of doing this is that, listen, we can't trust the legislature. We can't trust the PUC. Uh, because they're, they're weak. This is, I'm reading between the lines again. John would never admit that that's what he means. But that you can't trust them, that you're, that, that you're politically captive to, to the monopoly utility, which has tremendous um, uh, campaign contributions and the best lobbyists in the world. <laughs> uh, and, and so, so you, can't, you just can't trust you guys to do the right thing. That's why this needs to be put in the Constitution through the ballot process. Um, now, here's where I get in trouble. Uh, I, I believe that is what they're saying, and 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 they. Um, but right, but in, they? in the same breath, we're so smart, we're going to figure it all out. 
and let us figure it all out. Because you got to so, come back and do the re-regulated market. Yeah, and, and we'll help you there. Though. Yeah, yeah I appreciate the help. They're, they're he's, from, he's from Berkeley, and he's here to help. So, <laughs> oh my God. Uh, so, so um, don't let the cowboy boys fool you. It's Berkeley, not Texas. Oh my. God. So, um, the the. The, I, I knew this would. I knew this would finally get ad hominem at the end. Um, no, but but so the, the truth of the matter is, um, uh, you know, this thing passed with with seventy two percent, largely because um, it was the, the signatures were being collected at the same time they were collecting bring back solar signatures, a, a ballot measure that didn't make the cut in the courts and didn't end up on our ballot. And then, um, if you recall, there was a, a lot of controversy around rooftop solar at the same time we were going to the ballot box. And so it, it, I talked to nine out of 10 people I talked to uh, about voting for this, voted, they thought they were voting for rooftop solar. And, and so that, I think that now that the, that issue has been uh, kind of cleared up and we're moving forward with it, it's a, it's a different issue. But um, I, 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 when it passed, I, I, and there are folks in this room, I, I sat down with them and said, all right, where's the language? Those same folks still don't have language. So uh, the, the fact that, that nothing got done in 2017, you had a host of energy bills that tried to address the fundamental issues that, that created the, the, the want to do this constitutional amendment, and, and, and I think we, we addressed a lot of them, but when it was time for, for the, the sponsors, the drafters, and the team that put this thing forward to, to, to put language out, it was non-existent. Are you talking about him? I'm talking about the team which he works on, not him necessarily. I don't know what his role is in that. If he's I, I wasn't there in policy maker or, or regulatory, he was in Berkeley at the but, time, sir. But but in that sense, <laughs> no, 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 I was actually fighting to bring back net metering, which right. we didn't get back, unfortunately. Right. We only got it partially back, and maybe Chris can explain why. Because we fought for 100 percent of retail rate in net metering in the 2017 legislature. We didn't get it. We have this tiered system Did I now. mention the political sway that Envy Energy has in the well, legislature? I, I, I don't know if that had anything to do Anyhow, with it or not, John, I, I, I think, I, we didn't I think get that, all, all of that I think people back, understand what, 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 what's really going on. No thanks to either of you. But uh, <laughs> So, Elizabeth, uh, I, I don't know where she is, but hopefully we'll have some questions from the audience. Is Elizabeth still here? Where is she? Yes, she's still here. Oh, my here. God, the disembodied voice. <laughs> and through the magic of technology, she doesn't need to come to the front. Are you going to be lowered down or somehow? I'd love <laughs> to. What are we having um, I'd like to just say this is kind of amazing. So we had received a couple of dozen questions from readers today before we even got here tonight. And just during the forum, I received about another 30 questions wow. from people who are here tonight. So I'd just like to say, I think we have the smartest readers of news anywhere right here in this room. Mm, yay. True. And also, we're going to be here all night, so yeah. let's go. Uh, I had the difficult task of choosing what I thought were some good questions that did not get asked uh, tonight. So here they are, number one, from a reader who wishes to remain anonymous. Nevada is unique and in that if a customer wants to exit the energy system, there's a process in the statutes called NRS 704B. Uh, Riley Snyder can explain what that means here in a second. To do so, um, so question three in a way seems like an end run around that process in the search for cheaper power without paying these stranded costs. Why do we need question three rather than just sticking with 704B? 
So Riley explained 704B earlier about this, and this is the process by which a lot of these big users uh, have left. But that seems to be a pretty good question, John. Oh, there's no, first of all, <laughs> there's no end around the exit fees. Because again, the exit fees pay for the stranded costs. And as I explained, those stranded costs are embedded in rates. So if we, in fact, go to choice, and let's pick the sands, for example, okay? If we go to choice, and the sands gets choice, whatever those stranded costs that are embedded in rates now, they'll have to prepare to pay their proportionate share, which would be the same as the exit fee they would pay anyway. So there's no extra amount, more or less, that the sands would achieve by choice happening. Do you, do you get extra for every time you mention the sands? Or, no. Because you should have done no. it earlier. Actually, <laughs> actually, I haven't talked to the sands at all okay. about this, to tell you the truth. What about that? So that's not what the, the Yes on 3 campaign or the sands say. So <laughs> that, that, that's, they, I, I think they believe, and, and, um, and, and it has been stated publicly, that this would eliminate the exit fee um, process uh, that's associated with um, 704B. Now, I don't know that that's even possible, um, but, but keep in mind, according to, to Mr. Wellinghoff's study, there are no stranded costs. There's a benefit. So, like, that, this is all so conflicting and so confusing, and, and, and I, I think that that is the, the primary motivation of, of the, the proponents for this, is to avoid the 704B exit fee issue. I think the... I I'm going to just relish the opportunity to correct both of you. Um, but the, <laughs> the issue that the Sands has savor and brought this up, moment. I will savor, savor it the one time more, um, <laughs> is that there's just, they don't know how, they say they do not know how the exit fee is structured. They just say, like, the PUC put all these numbers into a box, typed in a bunch of keys, and, like, a number popped out. So I think their concern was, we don't know how this was structured. We assume there is an exit fee, but we would like more transparency in how it's uh, uh, determined um, as to whether or not They'll pay it. I think these are, uh, I don't know if I can answer that, well, but I think that was their, their main concern. And all I'm saying is we're all going to pay one way or the other. They, as well as everybody else, because these $4 billion are embedded in rates. And so it will be part of the costs going forward under choice or not under choice. Sands will pay, everybody else will pay, who has not paid an exit fee. If somebody's paid an exit fee already, they may avoid some costs because they've already paid that exit fee when we go to choice. But ultimately, it's not going to be any different amount of money one way or the other. There's going to be no savings. And, I don't, and again, I don't know what the Sands has said because I haven't talked to them about this. This is my understanding from, it's again, 45 years of, of being a regulatory attorney of how rates work and how it will work for them and everybody else. All right, let's, let's go on to the next question. Elizabeth? Okay, from reader Becky Penn, she wants to know if both question three and question six pass, how will question three affect question six or vice versa? Chris, you want to take that one first? Sure. So, so, so I think that um, uh, question three makes a, a portfolio standard unenforceable. And I think that question six um, puts, embeds in the Constitution the insurance that we need for, uh, to make sure that we continue as, uh, get back on track as a leader in renewables if, in fact, question three passes. 
And so um, I think question three uh, kind of derails our, our current path that we're on um, for uh, large adoption of renewable energy. And question six is, is really a safety net and insurance because if we put this in the Constitution, we have to have a constitutional methodology of enforcing a, a portfolio standard. And so I, I think that they... Um, six is there as a backstop. Um, it, I don't know that that was its, in, its intended um, purpose, but it's there as a backstop in the event that three passes. So if I could on this one, and I know Rose McKinney-James is somewhere in the audience here. She wrote the first renewable portfolio standard in the state of Nevada in 1997. Let's give it to Rose. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I helped amend it in 2001. So... Um, I'm very familiar with renewable portfolio standards. I see absolutely no issue with question three impinging upon the renewable portfolio standard. In fact, there's a provision in uh, the language in question three that specifically says that the renewable uh, policies of the state will be preserved ultimately. Um, and from that, um, there's no issue with respect to continuing a renewable portfolio standard in the state or enforcing it. In fact, they do have in Texas a renewable portfolio standard. Texas, in fact, had one of the first renewable portfolio standards. In fact, has had renewables developed since that time, very early times in the, in the early 90s, ultimately. So they enforce it there. It works there with respect to all the retail providers there. And there's really no reason why it ultimately can't work here in Nevada as well. I forget. Is question six a constitutional amendment or not? It is. Yes. And, but, and so it question is. six, it's okay to put that in the Constitution, but not question three? I, I, I'm not sure question, if I John. get that's, that's right. And I knew that question was not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like I said, like, like I, said that, that I, I don't feel that there is any way to maintain um, the, the, the course that the people of Nevada have, have set us on and that would want us to pursue in, a, in, in adapti- adopting renewable energy rapidly than to put it in the Constitution as a result of uh, question three, the, the uncertainty that question three creates. So, But why is a question on public policy, would question six be okay for the Constitution and question three isn't? I mean, do you want to become like California? Oh my God, I sound like Adam Laxalt. <laughs> 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 um, you know, I, I am not saying that the goals of question six shouldn't be in the Constitution, they should be. I'm not saying that the goals of question three shouldn't be pursued. I'm saying the actual and exact words as they live in the constitutional amendment that, that would be section 23 of the Constitution in Article One are, are, are disastrous. The effects, I believe, would be disastrous. I, I don't believe that that's the same case of, of the very vague uh, and, and um, guiding principles that live in question six. I just okay. think that it's apples and oranges. All right, let's do a few more, Elizabeth. From Ann Smith, if it's a no on question three in November, what is the future leverage on Envy Energy to remain competitive or be competitive um, to increase renewable standards and not to influence or overpower the state legislature in future policymaking sessions. I didn't write that, I promise. I didn't use that. <laughs> what do you think? I, I, I think that, that you know, um, we are a body of elected um, representatives of the people of Nevada. 
and um, we come up, in my case, for election every two years. And it is our responsibility to do the, the work of the people of Nevada. And if that, and part of that is to make sure that you're not getting overcharged for your utilities that are regulated by the state of Nevada. And, and we currently have a competitive and well-run and, um, and, and low-cost utility provider in the state. And that is largely as a result of the, the work of the Nevada legislature and of the work of our Public Utilities Commission. It is not always perfect. We stumble and we fall along the way. And, and I have spent most of my career in sometimes in, in heated uh, debates and, and, and with Envy Energy and, and, and utilities. Um, and, and so it is part of the process and it's what we are elected to do and it's what keeps them honest. Um, I, I, I think it's, it's, you know, uh, it's disappointing to me that, that the proponents of this, and then some Nevadans as well, don't trust the legislature to do what, what their job is to do, yet are going to open the books to the, the Constitution and then trust us to then come back and write it correctly. Um, I, I, I think that I, I try to do my job to the best of my abilities, and so do my peers. And, and the result of that good work is a well-run utility system in the state of Nevada that provides lots of choices for large consumers and, and, and keeps our power bills low, keeps the lights on, and, and helps us utilize the renewable energy that we have here in the state. So I, I think we're doing a fine job, and we can always do better, and you should just elect people who are, are willing to do that work. John, you want to respond to that? Oh, I think Chris does a fine job, and, and Chris and I, you know, I and I have worked together, you know, on a number of initiatives and and, and go back a, a long way. And I, I wouldn't I wouldn't criticize Chris. I, I I do believe, however, that the direction in question three is necessary to the legislature as a whole. And I think once that direction, in fact, is provided, that ultimately we can sit down together in, in three legislative sessions, and that's the other key portion of this. We're not going to do this in 120 days. 2023. We're going right. to do this ultimately in 360 days over a period of, you know, a number of years. So I think we have plenty of time to learn from mistakes that other states have made. Massachusetts has made huge mistakes, and I was there when the Massachusetts Attorney General testified before, uh, uh, Deputy Attorney General testified before the Governor's Committee that Chris sat on, and, and, and I was, you know, abhorred by some of the things that she was saying, but obviously they did it wrong. We need to learn how to do it right, and I think we are smart enough to know how to do it right, and I have every faith in Chris and the ability to do that. All right, Elizabeth, I don't know how many more you think we should do. One, two, what do you think? Let's do one more. Okay. From Michelle, who is a hospice nurse case manager here in Southern Nevada. She says, I have a couple of patients who are on continuous oxygen and do not have the funds to cover their electric bills. Through existing Envy Energy programs, their power is never shut off, and they have oxygen in their last phase of life. How would these patients and others like them fare under a deregulated energy system if Envy Energy is not around? Question of reliability, John. You've addressed well, this before. Well, then two parts. The reliability part as far as you know, keeping the lights on, and that's the lines and wires, and Paul Cadell said to you, John, in a program that you had, that ultimately he did not believe that Energy Choice would uh, have any uh, substantial effect on reliability, and, and he's correct, and I 
believe, Paul. I think he's... That was back when they were neutral, wasn't it? That's back when they were neutral. Okay. That's correct. <laughs> uh, the, the second question about, you know, shutoffs, et cetera, I mean, you know, we do have to provide for... Uh, people who have difficulty paying their bills, and we would continue those programs. And the legislature, I'm sure, wouldn't let those programs go away. And those programs, again, would be applied across all retail providers to ensure that ultimately consumers who have difficulty paying their bills and you know have the kind of assistance that they need, we need to ensure that we do that. And I don't, I don't see that going away. You think reliability is an issue or not? Or is, I, it, is it a straw man? I don't think that the, 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 anything will go necessarily wrong with the wires and the, and the substations and the transmission system and the distribution system. I think what we'll see is we'll see market manipulation um, or could see market manipulation in the same way that we did um, almost 15, 17, 18 years ago now. And um, where that reliability, those blackouts, those brownouts, they weren't caused by a lack of capacity in our distribution system. They weren't caused by a faulty or old transmission and utility system. They were caused by market manipulation. And so I think if you take away the pricing protections that, that exist with our current model, that you open up the, the um, markets to the, 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 the possibility of market manipulation again, both on the wholesale level and on the retail level. Can I, can I go ahead? Because I know a little bit about this area. Because uh, at, at FERC, we were over the wholesale markets. The market manipulation that took place, for example, in California and the problems in California during the 2000-2001 energy crisis was entirely a wholesale issue. That wholesale market manipulation will not take place when we put energy choice in place in Nevada. Ultimately, it won't take place because the FERC has put in place structures since 2000, 2001, actually in 2005, the Congress changed the law to provide FERC with authority to go after fraud manipulation and also gave them specific penalty authorities that were much higher than they had in 2000, 2001. So we haven't seen any of that of any high degree in the markets. There's been a few people who try to, again, be the smartest person in the room, but FERC stopped them. In fact, you know, I've, we find uh, you know, a number of Wall Street firms who are in the markets trying to manipulate in California and other places hundreds of millions of dollars while I was at FERC, and we stopped them very quickly. So that wholesale market manipulation will not take place, ultimately. And secondly, on the, on the retail side, manipulation of the market on the retail side, again, if some guys trying to, you know, some one of the retail providers is going to be the smartest guy in the room trying to manipulate something. Well, you can go to the guy across the street, ultimately. You don't have to take from that guy, number one. And number two, we, we're going to have consumer protections in place, strong consumer protections in place in Nevada to oversee those actors like they do in other states that have retail choice to ensure that protections are in place for consumers. And, and first of all, I think, John, you did a fine job while you were at FERC. And, and you're the longest serving uh, chair or, or commissioner at FERC, I believe. And, longest and serving chair. Yeah. We, and we did some, some amazing things as a country during that time in, in the energy markets. But I just read two articles in EE News. One of them is, is an interview with you where you, me and you agree wholeheartedly on this. You expressed concern over the infiltration of FERC with political appointees under this current administration and how, how the, the federal government, our, our, our executive branch, the, the administration we currently have or could have in the future, 
um, is, is, is manipulating FERC for political gains. And so um, I, I just read another article in EE News just in July where they, they list how FERC is, 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 is being, trying to be ordered by the Department of Energy to um, keep out of the money and unfinancially un, uh, sustainable nuclear power um, stations and older aging coal plants up and running and, and making, forcing those costs upon um, uh, uh, the ratepayers. And so I think that, that there are some issues with the federal... I don't want to turn over necessarily the, the control of the wholesale market of, in, of, of Nevada to FERC. And actually, I definitely don't want to do it, it under it, this administration. It actually is in FERC's control right now. So okay, I mean, okay. so... The wholesale market in Nevada and every place else and is basic, already... Basically, is what already, he's, he's trying to compliment you. He's basically saying, I, I, I pray Willinghoff let they lose or something like that. I, I understand right? that. But, but anyhow, but anyhow that, I, really, I, I do want to thank John Wellinghoff and Chris Brooks for coming here and having a really uh, elevated and, 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 and smart discussion on, on both sides of this issue. So give him a round of applause for coming over here. And... I hope, I hope you all realize now, I want to thank Riley for coming and, and doing all the heavy lifting. He really is a tremendous supporter and did a great job. But most of all, I really want to thank all of you for, for sitting here for 90 minutes plus. And, and no, but seriously, and, and really taking the time to listen to, to a, a discussion of a very, very difficult issue. I'm not sure if it cleared up completely anything for anybody, but I think you saw, I think you saw a very... Beyond the beyond the 30-second ads that both sides are running, you saw uh, uh, an explication of these issues that you won't see anywhere else. That's what we're trying to do at the Nevada Independent. We're going to do more and more, more and more events like this, and, and uh, we really appreciate your coming and your support. Thanks for coming. Tonight.